and welcome to the July 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm Sean Nolan here with Matt Bowling. Hi, Matt. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right today. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. I haven't seen you for all of five minutes. True. True. Very true. Well, we're sitting here in our comfy office once again, although we gave uh, Matt a little less comfortable chair this time. Uh, we had some complaints on the last podcast that Matt's snores could be heard at sorry, various times when so, I was talking. Sorry about that. It, it just it just wasn't appropriate. So we, we've we've gotten Matt a harder chair, and uh, my chair is squeaking. So if you hear little squeaks ee, ee, in the background, that's uh, that would be my chair. So you know if I'm getting excited at any point in this podcast, you'll hear little squeaks because that's my chair roaming around while Matt's talking. Well, Matt, what uh, what should we talk about today? I think we should talk about the federal vision. Oh my! Well, that's a that's a big topic. Do we really want to address the federal vision? I don't think we're going to address all of it. We've got a little bit of a framework with uh, the fact that most of you know who listen to the podcast that Sean and I are both uh, ministers in the Presbyterian Church in America, and uh, we've recently come back from our yearly denominational meeting called General Assembly, and uh, there a study committee uh, delivered to the assembly uh, a study report that was. Um, whose recommendations were adopted um, by, um, I don't know, what do you think, a 75% vote? Oh, it was at least that. It was at least that, yeah. And so we thought that we might... an overwhelming majority. An overwhelming majority. There was no count made. Right. Not even close to a count being made. And so we thought that we might... um, Some of you have probably spent a lot of time uh, thinking about the Federal Vision, reading on it. Others of you, you're wondering, what in the world is the Federal Vision? So that's probably where we ought to start. What is the Federal Vision and why should I care? Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, there's a book by the title. Yes. Um, But we would have to go back quite a bit further than the book, which was put out in 2004 by Athanasius Press, which is out of... uh, that's Monroe. Steve Wilkins, Steve Wilkins Church, right? Auburn, Auburn Avenue, Auburn Presbyterian. Avenue in uh, Monroe, Louisiana. Um, a lot of this controversy, we'll, we're going to offer a number of resources to you to look at. Um, this controversy begins, uh, well, there's several, probably several different beginning points, but let's do a most proximate one. We'll talk about the new perspective on Paul a little bit later, and the new perspectives maybe is a better term. But at least the controversy... Um, the Federal Vision in its uh, iteration right now, we could trace to the teachings, in part, to the teachings of Norman Shepard, who taught at Westminster Seminary in the 60s and 70s and uh, into the early 80s. And um, he uh, emphasized uh, quite a few different things that have come out in full fruit in the Federal Vision. In fact, he's lent his support to this. And so... What we'd say is the federal vision is um, an attempt by some people to uh, clarify, in their mind, teachings which are unclear um, in the Reformation tradition regarding um, covenant, election, justification, assurance, perseverance. Uh, They think that modern, uh, especially Presbyterian Reformed denominations, have gotten these things wrong. That they have, uh, in their words, we viewed things through much too much through the lens of the decree, through the eternal things that God has ordained, rather than through the lens of the covenant, as they say it, through the things that only man can see. And so uh, there's a, a lot of different things that come under the federal vision, but if you want to get an orientation to the kinds of issues, the best place to start is uh, the current justification controversy. 
uh, which is uh, now a book, but it was released by it uh, was written by O. Palmer Robertson. And he wrote this as a summary for the PCA General Assembly. It was originally just a summary paper that he wrote for the PCA General Assembly that was distributed to all of the commissioners. This would have been in the early 80s. I want to say maybe 82. But it has now um, been reissued in a softcover book by um, the Trinity Foundation. Is that right? Trinity Foundation out of Tennessee. And um, that is, I found, as I've researched this over the last several years, the most useful beginning point uh, to sort of begin to see the issues that are in play, at least that Norm Shepard was concerned about. There's more that have come into play since then, but he's at least, I was surprised in reading that, what O. Palmer had written in the early 80s, um, how much of it was absolutely relevant uh, for today. Now, obviously, the justification the controversy and controversies over justification go back oh uh, a lot farther than the 80s true uh, i mean they go they go back all the way to the cross yes uh, you have controversies over justification and what what happened on the cross what did that mean all throughout well even church in Acts, history even in act 16 we begin to see you know what are the requirements that are that that were to do you see it in galatians um and, you know, and, and I think Acts 16 qualifies the form of our gratitude, that it's not uh, obedience to the ceremonial law. Um, but Galatians is concerned that we get justification right. And so the Reformers were right, in our view, um, to clarify, you know, Luther said justification is the, uh, the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Uh, this is what the Reformation was all about, was whether the institutional church at that time um, codified in the, the Council of Trent about 100 years after Calvin and Luther, um, whether they're right or whether the Protestant view of justification is right. And so this is not – these are not little things that we should just um, you know, not worry about and it will just be fine. But uh, when we go around talking about justification, um, this is the – this is, as Calvin said, the hinge, the hinge of everything. Yeah. If if justification really is the issue, which we believe it is, yeah, uh, that this is why things like the Federal Vision, uh, Shepherdism, referring right. to Norm Shepherd, uh, also the new perspective on Paul. We haven't mentioned that, but this study report that came out from the PCA General Assembly also addressed uh, the new perspective on Paul. A, a helpful way to understand the relationship between the new perspective on Paul and the federal vision is, is simply this. The new perspective on Paul, uh, popularized by a man by the name of uh, an Anglican bishop by the name of N.T. Wright, uh, is more on the scholarly level. This is material that people who would consider themselves scholars or would fit into that category, this is the material they're reading. Whereas the federal vision... Uh, some of Shepard's works are on a more popular level. Uh, they're going to be read more by uh, your average pastor than they are your uh, intense scholar. Right. Uh, right. So that's a good that's a good division there. One other resource um, that I think is very helpful in understanding where this has all come from is a an MP3 that's floating around on the internet on the new perspective on Paul. Look up new perspective on Paul. Sinclair Ferguson, and we'll find the link to this and uh, put that link on our on our blog. Uh, but Sinclair takes about an hour and fifteen minutes to give an overview of the history of the new perspective on Paul, 
And that, to me, is one of the most helpful things that I've heard. Obviously, if you've got the time to sit down and listen to us on a podcast, uh, you've got the time to sit down and listen to Sinclair Ferguson talk for about an hour on the new perspective of Paul. You'll understand its beginnings, some of the people, where it came from. And really, it's the new perspective on Paul tied with shepherdism has has floated down through the ranks, as it were, into what we understand as the, as the federal vision. Uh, a recent Modern Reformation magazine had an article in it entitled A More Perfect Union uh, by a fellow by the name of J.V. Fesco. And in this article, you can find this. You may be able to find this on the Modern Reformation website. Uh, otherwise, it's in a recent edition of Modern Reformation. I don't have the edition number here with me. But he addresses in there the relationship between the new perspective on Paul and the federal vision. And that's very important because one of the key areas that they are similar is that you're going to find across the board uh, the new perspective on Paul, shepherdism, federal vision are denying the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Across the board, at all points, they seem to be denying the imputation of the active righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, we get this, Luther talked about the passive and active righteousness of Christ. The passive righteousness of Christ being Christ's death upon the cross. He received the retribution there for our sins. Uh, but his life was not without purpose. It wasn't as if Jesus had to come only as a 33-year-old or so, 30-year-old or so, and die on the cross, but it was important that he live a life of righteousness. And Luther referred to that as his active righteousness. So when we believe in Christ, not only are our sins forgiven uh, by his taking the punishment for them upon the cross, but then the active righteousness of Christ, his life's work, as it were, is imputed to or transferred to our account. And this is a truth we hold dear. Uh, this is the gospel. Uh, as we're going to be talking about some scripture here in the next hour, uh, I think you'll see that this is very clear, uh, not only in the confessions, but throughout the scripture, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, and if it's not, we, we have no gospel. And so this is why, as Matt said a minute ago, this is why this is so important. Um, I, I would urge pastors to study this. Um, I don't say that with great relish. I don't think any of us want to be studying false teaching. Uh, but you know, if you, if you're, if you're a, uh, Bible believing pastor living in Salt Lake City, the fact is, you've got to read up on Mormonism. Well, if you're a Reformed pastor, the fact is, you, you probably need to read up on this because these are the false teachings that are spreading through our uh, respective denominations at this time. And so it's important that we have a grasp on them. It's important we understand why they're wrong uh, so that we can respond to them when they come up. In fact, that was really what this report led us to at our General Assembly. It was not that now we have a report, we have a statement of our belief, but now our denomination has agreed, well, along with almost every other conservative reformed denomination. Now, I don't, Matt, do you know of any reformed denomination that has not no. made a report declaring mm -hmm. the federal vision to be Not that I'm aware false? of. Not yeah, I, I don't know of one either. In fact, the the Bible Presbyterian Church, which is just a small denomination, just added their uh, added their words to it as well. So, 
Uh, this is something that across the board, these men have been refuted. And now it's we're going to have to deal with this in our churches. We're going to have to deal with this um, as these men come up, as we're made uh, aware of these men in our churches. They're going to need to be, unfortunately, they're going to need to be tried. And their views are going to need to be examined. And if they fall outside, particularly in the PCA, if they fall outside of our statement of faith, which is the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the larger and shorter catechisms, then they're going to need to accept that they fall outside of those standards and go somewhere else. Um, I, I really don't look forward to the fact that we may be deposing, that is, removing many of these men from office if they stubbornly refuse to admit that they uh, they don't hold to the standards. Yeah, yeah, but it's a reality. I mean, it's part of it. Uh, Paul is the one who leads us in this way because he's the one who uh, pronounces that if it's another gospel, then then it's you know the person's cut off to hell. And so we have to be very careful when we come to talk about and to teach about the gospel of Jesus Christ and and the terms by which people can be accepted with God. And those are the kinds of things that are in play uh, in this controversy. But you, you've got to read that. You shouldn't just take our word for it. You should read that and see that that's precisely uh, the kinds of matters that are that are in play. Well, Matt, for the remainder of this hour, we're going to spend some time on the specific declarations uh, that this report made. But maybe before we go there, obviously, you know our opinion. We're not we're not hiding our opinion here. We we think the Federal Vision is a false teaching. Uh, we think that it confuses at best, uh, destroys at worst, uh, our understand- scriptural understanding of the gospel and of justification and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Uh, however, we, we do need to ask this question. Uh, can we say anything good about the federal vision? You know, that's interesting because I started investigating the federal vision, oh, I want to say... Uh, for a little bit more than four years ago, because it, uh, I'm not even quite sure how I got interested in it, but I listened to a tape series from an Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference from 2003. I actually listened through it twice, which was a, a large investment of my time, uh, besides everything else to do as a pastor. And what struck me, um, besides the things that I disagreed with, was that about half of what the guys were saying, the, the proponents of the Federal Vision were saying, they struck me simply as in line with our standards, which at first was very confusing. Uh, an emphasis on the covenant, uh, an emphasis on the sacraments, uh, an emphasis on um, letting the words of Scripture speak and not uh, recasting them because of our theological framework, um, having worship that that was uh, that was historically rooted. It, a lot of the concerns that they had, it's, it occurred to me, were confusing that they even needed to say them because they were what I already believed. They weren't new things. But as I pondered it more, I realized that this had not been the experience of these men in the context in which they had worked and that that uh, what was going on in the Reformed churches that they were aware of were churches that were not actually practicing uh, the Reformed doctrine that they said that they held. And the reform practice that they said that they held in terms of the covenant and, and the sacraments and things like that. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was disappointing because it's very, very hard to do theology neutrally. 
right? It's, it's almost impossible for us to start a, sort of start from nowhere and come up with something. Almost always theology is reaction. And so if what we're reacting to is itself a distortion, then we're most likely to produce our own distortion. And it's clear that the church practice that some of these men had experienced was distorted. It was not genuine. Um, it, what I would say is the best church practice flowing out of the Reformation era. And so I think there are there are a good number of things. I think uh, the very name of our podcast uh, is an attempt to recover in the modern evangelical and Reformed and Presbyterian church uh, a high place for the ordinary means of grace. Because that is something that in an age of programs and staff and, and uh, you know, what is it that the church can offer to my family, we've missed the fact that God's way of converting and growing us is through the preaching of the word and through the simple applications of the word, sacraments, and prayer. In family life, the word and prayer, and in the church, all three. And so there are things that we can come up with to these brothers and say, amen, brother, let's, let's make the role of the sacraments what God intended them to be. Uh, let's make the role of the preaching of the word what it was intended to be, uh, and prayer as well. But let's not distort the gospel as we do that. That's our concern. Yeah, there there are other areas, too, where you, at first glance, when you pick up or you read these guys, um, by these guys I mean men like um, Steve Wilkins, Doug Wilson, Peter Lightheart, Jim Jordan. Uh, you know, these are the, some of the names you might know that you've, you've probably, probably many of you, I would I would guess, have picked up a book at some point by Doug Wilson. And you pick up a book by Doug Wilson, you're immediately struck with a, with a high view of patriarchy, mm-hmm. uh, with a high view of marriage, uh, with a high view of worship and of the sacraments. And you read these things, and particularly what I've seen is that young seminarians read these things. Mm-hmm. And they say, here is something that's even more reformed than the reformed that I've come to know. And... Uh, thus, Doug Wilson has a book, Reformed is Not Enough. He seems to be uh, going, he wants to take us beyond what many of us know to be the Reformed Church. Now, I don't want to make a, a too broad of a characterization here, but for the most part, most of these men who are writing for the Federal Vision have a broadly evangelical background. They've come to the Reformed faith later, and they're reacting really against two separate things. They're reacting against the errors in the evangelical church, right? Broadly, broadly, and they're reacting in to the errors in the Reformed Church, where they see the Reformed Church as too evangelical, or too broadly evangelical, if I right. could say that. Things like uh, too much of an inf- emphasis on conversion. Right. Is a complaint that they have. Not enough emphasis on the Lord's Supper. Not enough emphasis on uh, baptism. Not enough emphasis on some of the ordinary means, as you, right. as you said, right. Matt. So these concerns that they have are good. Yes. But as Matt said, where they go with them is too far. I'm going to float something here, Sean, that I've said to you before, but I have not um, publicly taught or said so let me um, testify a bit to the motive of the men, even if we're going to critique um, the doctrine. Interestingly for me, historically, um, in, a, in the mid-70s era, in a similar part of the country, in fact, two men on the same faculty of the same seminary, developed two strands of thinking on 
justification and sanctification. And I've not read anybody that's linked these together, but I've talked with a number of people about this. But in the same era, uh, Jack Miller began to formulate um, the sonship teaching, which has been picked up and modified in much more helpful ways than the original sonship. So this is not a plug for sonship. But there are some helpful things there that Jack talked about that other people have more helpfully. For example, Brian Chappell's Holiness by Grace, I think, is a wonderful book that I can wholeheartedly commend to you. But that's a fruit. That book is a fruit of original work, preliminary work that Jack Miller did, of one way of seeing the people of God become obedient. And what what Jack did and others have built upon is to point people back to the gratitude that they should have for grace and serve God and obey his law for that reason. And so the goal of Jack Miller was to see people who lived in obedience out of gratitude for grace. In a similar time period, in the same seminary, Norman Shepard also concerned with an easy believism that did not result in a wholesale obedience in the life of the person, moved in a different direction in seeking to bring about obedience in the lives of believers. And what he did, and what stands behind a lot of, as I've already said, uh, the federal vision, is the way that he moved was to, st- was to say and this is going to sound weird if you haven't read all this before, but what Norman Shepard said was to maintain our justification, we needed to be obedient. And so both of these men were seeking that the lives of believers would uh, find fruit in obedience, which is a biblical goal. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Exactly. And so I think that the motive in the background is a biblical one, that we want to see obedience in the lives of people. The question is, what is the way that God desires us to bring about obedience in our lives? That's our critique. I recently, right before our General Assembly, I read a big fat book that we'll now recommend to you, um, which is Guy Waters has written two major books over the last several years, one on the new perspectives on Paul, one on um, on the federal vision and an analysis of it. We'll put links on the blog for you uh, to those books. But I read Guy Waters' big book on the federal vision uh, in the weeks prior to our General Assembly, so I felt prepped for the debate. And Sean was away on vacation, and I called him and left a message on his phone because it struck me as I went through, um, and we'll get to this more specifically in some of these declarations, which we need to get to. But one of the things that struck me as we go through and we talk about the federal vision is that uh, the way that this uh, doctrine works out is that somebody becomes a Christian in the covenantal sense by baptism. And having become a Christian by baptism they are now called by God to obedience. And what struck me as I read that was the traditional reform view is that somebody is incapable of obedience without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And in the federal vision, there is a sense in which because someone is baptized and they have union with Christ in the covenantal sense, that they have in a sense the Holy Spirit because they have Christ. But they don't want, the Federal Vision guys don't want to talk about the subjective reality 
of whether somebody is actually regenerated and indwelt actually by the spirit. No, they're they, to count they would that they have to been, leave the object the what we would call the objectivity we would place the the objectivity how do you know whether or not a person is really saved we would place that in the fruit absolutely so we would look at a person we say well i see the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control i see that in this person i see the love of the brethren in this person so then we would objectively say okay this person therefore is a christian right they can't manufacture that by themselves on a consistent uh, even in private basis, that has to be the fruit of the Spirit. We see, indeed, that you are indwelt by the Spirit. Whereas, Whereas the, the Federal Vision right. wants to put the objectivity with baptism. Exactly. And so I have you know, I have my certificate. Right. I've been baptized. Therefore, I am a Christian. And the trouble with that is they're calling people t- to an obedience which they are incapable of. Because if they don't actually have the Spirit then they can't exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And to call them to an obedience to the fruit of the Spirit is just to send them in to do something, a fool's errand, that they cannot do. And that's the great danger for me. That's what struck me as I researched all of this, is that if somebody doesn't have the Spirit, they can't give the obedience that only the Spirit can produce in the life of a person. Just a couple points before we get to the declarations. I know we keep saying we're going to get to the declarations, and we will get there. Um Two things. Matt, your point about the relationship between justification and sanctification, about right. the the necessity of obedience. It's important to note that many of these men in the Federal Vision, um, back when the theonomy debate was big, they were those who landed on the side of theonomy. Yes. And if you're unfamiliar with theonomy, theonomy is uh, an attempt to apply the Old Testament law under the New Covenant uh, perhaps in exhaustive detail. In, in exhaustive detail, although that, that's not always the case, but that's that's a general way of putting right. it. Uh, and so these these are men who, and I think this is where they've made one of their crucial errors, is that in the old covenant, circumcision made you a Jew. Right. In the new covenant, baptism does not necessarily make you a Christian. It's an over-continuity. Yes. So as Reformed people, we see that there's a continuity between the Old and New Covenant. There is there is distinction, there is difference, but in general, we would say that there is continuity. Uh, for example, for just to, to look at uh, the subjects of baptism, we would say, Reformed and Presbyterian folk would say, uh, with with deference and love to, to our Reformed Baptist brothers, um, that... Uh, that because children uh, were in the covenant in the Old Testament and for that reason were to receive the sign of the covenant even if they were not actual believers, uh, some of whom would never become actual believers, um, that in the New Testament uh, we also ought to put the sign of the covenant baptism on children irrespective of whether they're going to become believers or not. And so we would see a broad continuity. We would see one church, uh, not Two, we wouldn't see a distinction between the covenants in that sense. Uh, there is difference, though. And it seems on this point that theonomy misses the discontinuity, uh, that it is a new covenant, not just a modified old covenant. Yes. And and that I agree with you on that. The, the second thing is, and 
it may be that uh, we've already lost some of our listeners simply because all of this is so confusing. Uh, one of the things that the, the report uh, from the PCA refers to, but I, I think is, is taken up a bit stronger in another report that was made by uh, Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church back in October of 2005, uh, their first point in their unanimous uh, declaration that the Federal Vision is false teaching they make this point, and I think this is a very important point, especially as you're reading the Federal Vision, because the Federal Vision guys are going to say and sound right along the lines of the confession up to a point, and then they'll say, but the word justification also means this, and they will completely redefine justification in a completely opposite way. And this is, this is what the Woodruff Road statement said. It said that we reject the federal vision use of a separate theological language concurrent with but separate from traditional systematic theology. Now, what does that mean? That means that they use the same words we use theologically, but in completely different ways. So when a federal vision, uh, a proponent of the federal vision talks about our justification, they do not mean what the reformers have classically meant by our justification. Now, if you press them, they'll say, yes, they do, but they also believe more about it. And I think what we're going to argue here is that there, there is no more. That to believe that the confession does not go far enough with the doctrine of justification that it doesn't include enough, is essentially to say that they don't believe the doctrine of justification as contained in the Westminster Confession. Uh, one of the complaints that was lodged during the debate over the report in our General Assembly was that there was no scripture, mm-hmm. or, or there was very little scripture right, right. in the report. Well, the response to that was that the report was not asked to do scripture. Obviously, they did a lot of exegetical work in the background, but the report, the committee was simply asked, let us know if these views align with the confession. Well, I read, um, I think I can, I think they won't mind being labeled, but uh, uh, David Bailey on the Bailey blog made a wonderful point about that in that he said, when you're arguing that you have to add scripture to a committee report on something where the confession is so clear, you're essentially arguing that you don't agree with what the confession says, and you feel like the confession needs to be reworked. Some of you may not be familiar with confessions or, or catechisms, but the, the basic point of a confession or catechism, if you pick one up, um, the, it is footnoted to texts. And so what their goal is when, when these guys wrote um, confessions and catechism was to summarize the scriptures that are in the footnotes. This was the summary of their interpretation, their exegesis of these texts. And this was the way they summarized it, much in the way that if you were preaching one of those texts, you might do in a sermon. They just tried to put it into a codified summary statement sort of form. Um, And so uh, confessions are not uh, meant to be against Scripture. They're meant to be uh, a, a brief summary of the teaching of Scripture on a particular topic. And so to say that you need to add the Scriptures, as Sanja said, is to say, I don't agree with the exegesis of those scriptures that the confession brings out. Which which is important, because if they don't, there are ways, even in our denomination, there are ways to change the confession. Absolutely. Um, it, it's very hard 
to do, but it's been set up that way simply to uh, hold uh, the line of orthodoxy, to hold it firmly. Well, let's, uh, Matt, let's look at these declarations. We'll take them one by one, although I think what we're going to find here, there are nine of them, and I think what you're going to find is that the last four or five are, are pretty much along the same lines. Uh, the first few address some, some very specific issues. Uh, the last five or so uh, really continue with what does it mean to be united with Christ? What does it mean to have the benefits of Christ? Uh, what does it mean uh, to be justified in Christ? And so they, they contain some of the same, can be, refu- uh, can be uh, explained in some of the same ways. We will we'll link on the blog um, a, uh, your ability to actually download and to read this. It's on the PCA website. It's a public document. And so you'll be able to look at these declarations yourself and see the exact wording because we're just going to read it, make a few comments, and go on to the next one. So uh, we'll give you a link to that. You want to just take one and... Let's take one. Let me, let me, okay. I'll read one, and okay. then we can respond to it. Uh, number one, and this, so this is the report. This is saying we reject these ideas that, that appear to be the, the teaching of the Federal Vision and the New Perspective on Paul. So here it is. The first one, the view that rejects the bicovenantal structure of Scripture as represented in the Westminster Standards, i.e., Views which do not merely take issue with the terminology, but with the essence of the first, second covenant framework, these are contrary to our standards. So the idea here is uh, the basic view of the of the standards it builds on the scripture is that there's uh, a two covenant system in the scriptures. There's a covenant of works that God made with Adam. There's a covenant of grace that God also that. God made with Christ and his people promised to Adam in Genesis 3.15. That covenant of grace uh, unfolds progressively through the Old Testament into the New Testament that finds its greatest fulfillment in Christ and his uh, creation of the new covenant um, that he talks about in the Lord's Supper. And so um, the Federal Vision folks are, are, are uncomfortable with that hard division between the covenant works and covenant of grace. And so this first declaration is rejecting that strong two covenant view. One of the phrases that you're going to you're going to hear and you need to be very leery of is the phrase that God worked graciously with Adam. Or you'll hear the phrase that there was grace before the fall. Uh, this is a, a, a very what they want to say is they want to say that God is gracious. And God has always been gracious, and that Adam, as a man, could never possibly have earned heaven. On strict justice. On strict justice. And so, therefore, God, in promising heaven to Adam, had he obeyed, and obviously this is all in the realm of uh, hypothesis, because the scripture doesn't tell us what would have happened to Adam if he had obeyed, but we presume based on the fact that through Christ's obedience, we receive heaven, uh, we receive all the benefits of Christ, that Adam, had he obeyed, would have received similar benefits. The problem with using that terminology of grace before the fall, or that God was gracious to Adam, is, is simply this, that when the scripture uses the term grace, it doesn't mean Grace in the sense of a person is gracious or kind or loving. Or non-proportional. That's, it never comes across as non-proportional, which is the way that 
the 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 covenant with Adam, we could say, yeah, even if Adam had obeyed, the reward is not in proportion to the working. He gets the reward because God promised it, not because, according to strict justice, he should have earned it. When the scripture uses the term grace, it's talking about not the concept of loving kindness or faithfulness. It's talking about the concept of mercy. And when you take the word mercy and apply that to Adam before the fall, you have a real problem. Because mercy, for mercy to be applied, there must be sin. And to say that God was merciful before the fall, which is the sense of the term grace, you're saying that God uh, gave to Adam something that he needed. Whereas Adam was created perfect in holiness and righteousness in the image of God, Adam needed nothing. And so there was no need for God to be merciful to him because Adam did not have that need. Now, as a human, certainly he was not God, but he had a perfect relationship with God. He walked with God in the cool of the day. And so here, pre-fall, the relationship of Adam with God was a perfect relationship. And God could have rewarded him however God chose to reward him. Jesus uses the parable of, of the men who've been called to work in the field, and the first man who's called in the beginning of the day is told, you'll receive this much. And the guy at the end of the day is told, you'll receive the same. And they all get in line at the end of the day, and the first guy receives that much, and the last guy receives the same amount. And they complain. And they say, but Lord... He's been working, I've been working all day, he's only been working an hour, how can we get the same thing? He says, well, it's up to God to, to choose how much he's going to reward. And so with Adam, we see if God promised Adam heaven, he promised it, Adam heaven, purely out of his decision to reward Adam for his works, for his obedience, for his continuing in, uh, in his covenant with God. In the Adamic covenant, God would have rewarded him with heaven. There, there is no problem in the scripture with the idea of a disproportionate reward. Even the fact that we receive heaven is definitely disproportionate to what we deserve. Just like Adam, we don't deserve heaven in and of ourselves. We receive heaven because of the proportional work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus achieved it all. Um, one verse that we need to make note of is 1 Corinthians 15 uh, in this regard. When we're talking about a, a bicovenantal structure or the, the covenants of works and the covenants and the covenant of grace, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about what happened in Adam has been repaired in Christ. And so we see there very clearly that there was a covenant with Adam and that there was a covenant with Christ, and that Adam failed in the covenant, and that Christ took up the same covenant and, and fulfilled it. If that is the case, what the federal vision is proposing is that the Adamic covenant and the covenant with Christ are completely different covenants. So it's there they lose the continuity, because they don't want Adam to be a covenant of works, if Adam wasn't a covenant of works, then what was it that Christ fulfilled? If not, that original covenant that Adam failed to fulfill. 
And that's an important thing uh, to understand also because the federal vision across the board is denying the imputation of Christ's righteousness. They see no need for the perfect work of Christ in this life. In fact, what they'll often argue, I've got a quote here from uh, Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart argues, uh, he says, I don't believe that Adam or any human being could merit anything before God. Uh, but then he goes on to say, nor do I believe that Jesus, the incarnate son, had to do anything to receive the favor of his father. He is eternally favored by his father, he writes, and that favor is the starting point of his incarnate work, not the end point. So in other words, what, what Peter Lightheart is arguing is that Christ is received before God not because he fulfilled the law perfectly, but because he in his divine nature was perfect. And so what we have here is actually a confusion of uh, the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Christ came as a human to fulfill the law perfectly for us. It was because of that, according to Hebrews, that he could be the perfect sacrifice. And that's very, very important for us to understand. If we're simply basing the righteousness of Christ upon his divinity that he already had, then there was no need for the Savior to come and to grow in maturity as a man and to obey the law for his people. In fact, uh, where's my note here? Uh, in Matthew 3.15, we have Christ coming to John the Baptist and asking to be baptized. And John the Baptist looks at him and he says, Jesus, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And so Jesus responds to him and he says, yes, I understand that's, that's true, John, but it's important that you do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. So it's clear that what Jesus was doing in his life on this earth was fulfilling the law for his people actively. He was completing the works. He was tempted in every way, even as Adam was tempted in the garden. And yet, in the case of Christ, he was tempted and did not sin. And therefore, he becomes the perfect sacrifice. What the federal vision does is that they confuse this. They confuse the humanity of Christ with the divinity of Christ, and therefore break down our understanding of the Trinity and our understanding of the Incarnation. And they go further yet in saying, because we don't want Adam to be a covenant of works, and because we don't like the idea uh, of Adam being a covenant of works, then Christ must not be a covenant of works. And then they go on to, to deny the imputation of uh, Christ's act of righteousness. Here's a quote from Rich Lusk, who is one of the uh, Federal Vision writers. He says this, he says, Justification requires no transfer or imputation of anything. Right there, he has completely redefined justification and redefined it in a way that is completely contrary, not only to the confession, but to the standards. Matt, did you want to well, add to that? Well, I was just going to say that we'll, we'll make more clear why that is with a later declaration. Um, but maybe we should finish this one, Sean, just with a couple of questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. Mm. Um, this is Heidelberg Catechism question 16. Why must he, this is uh, Jesus, why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because, the, and here's the answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature with which it hath sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Uh, it seems 
to my read of the Federal Vision, that this would be enough for them, that they don't need the next Heidelberg Catechism question and answer, that they view Jesus not as one who fulfills righteousness, but as one who takes penalty for sin. Now, that's an important thing to take penalty for sin. But the next question is there in the Heidelberg Catechism, and it says this, why must he in one person be also very God? That he, And this is the point that Sean was trying to make about it that there might be some confusion here as to why was it necessary that Jesus be both God and man, uh, that he might be, this is the answer to why must he be in one, why must he in one person be also very God? Here's the answer that he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature, the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. And so that obtaining of righteousness is the point at which the Federal Vision is very uncomfortable. Was Jesus, like Adam, born righteous? Yes. Did he maintain righteousness his entire life, and that for us? Yes. Adam did not. This is Romans 5. Adam did not. Christ did. And that's why when you get to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Paul describes this great exchange, he doesn't just describe it as pardon, as our sins on Christ. That's not the end of it. It's also his righteousness uh, upon us. The second declaration is this. Uh, The view that an individual is elect by virtue of his membership in the visible church And that this election includes justification, adoption, and sanctification, but that this individual could lose his election. This is in quote, this election here is in quotation marks. Election in quotations. This individual could lose his election if he forsakes the visible church. And then the declaration declares this is contrary to the Westminster standards. Now what we're talking about here is that you have a, you have a view, uh, posited by the Federal Vision that when a person is baptized into the visible church, when they receive that external mark of the covenant, that they are at that point united to Christ, that they are from that point on to be considered elect, justified, Christians, Christians, sanctified. Now, if you press them on this, they will say, no, we don't believe all people who are baptized uh, are in fact uh, decretally elect or eternally elect. They will they will come back on that when you when you press them on that issue. But for them, the important issue is the covenant, not the decrees of God. They, they create a uh, essentially a theo- two theologies that are running uh, concurrently, but are completely confusing when they're attempted to when they when we attempt to blend them together. Uh, decretal theology is that what God has declared. Uh, thus it happens. God has declared who the elect are. Right. God knows their names. God decided them before the foundation of the world. Uh, the covenantal structure, which we agree that there is a, a an external, visible church, uh, we would say that those who are baptized are baptized into the visible church, and that if they are truly elect of God that they are also baptized by the Spirit into the invisible church, or that is, uh, the church, the whole church of God, those who are really... At the point of their regeneration. At the point of their regeneration. They are brought into um, the invisible church. Now, that may be, theoretically, at the point of their external baptism. It may not be. Right. Uh, I, I think the Federal Visionist would agree with that, that 
A person is not always regenerated at the time of their baptism. They definitely do not want to teach baptismal regeneration. The problem is that if you, when you teach things like the fact or, or like what they teach when they say that a baptized person is elect, a baptized person is justified, mm-hmm. a baptized person is uh, sanctified, is united to Christ, they're attributing the benefits that belong only to the elect to the non-elect. Now, what they'll reply to that is this. They'll say, well, sometimes the scripture calls the church of God the elect, which, in my opinion, is a very specious argument, because we all know that in all those cases where Paul is talking to the church, he's talking to those who are truly Christians in the church. Why else then, from time to time, would Paul come back and say, if you truly are a Christian, if you truly have received Christ? Uh, consistently, the apostles come back to that phrase just to remind the people that they're not talking to everybody in the visible church. They're talking to those in the visible church who are truly partakers of the benefits of Christ. And we'll touch on this again a little bit further down in the in the declarations here. Um, but let me let me read to the the next one. The view that Christ does not stand as a representative head whose perfect obedience and satisfaction is imputed to individuals who believe in him is contrary to the Westminster standards. Um, and so this declaration is trying to go back to the, what Sean and I had talked about in, in the introduction, that what is uh, being lost here is that Christ needed to come and live a perfect life and that we're not simply united to his death, but we're united uh, by the Spirit uh, at regeneration to his life. We're united to his perfect living uh, in our place. I think we've we've really addressed this issue of imputation already. We don't need to right. uh, carry on with it. So we're going to move on then to the uh, to the fourth declaration, which is that the view that strikes the language of merit from our theological vocabulary. See, this is related to imputation. We're talking about the merit of Christ. Absolutely. The language that strikes the language of merit from our theological vocabulary so that the claim is made that Christ's merits are not imputed to his people is contrary to the Westminster standards. Again, they don't like saying that Adam could earn anything. And once you remove the fact that Adam could possibly earn anything, even if it was disproportional, then you don't like the fact that Christ earned anything. Right. You want to say immediately that Christ was already worthy without having to accomplish something uh, for his people. Uh, well, The funny thing is, is if you look at uh, Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, this completely refutes this idea. In Romans, 1, 4, uh, Roman, sorry, Romans 4, 1 through 5, Paul writes, What shall we say then, uh, that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, was found? In other words, was he saved by his circumcision? Was he saved by his works? For if Abraham was justified by works, verse 2, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now I ask you, how could the belief of Abraham ever have earned the righteousness of God? Now to the one who works, it says in verse 4, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. 
Now, that's an important sentence there, because there Paul pulls out an analogy. He says the opposite of this, the opposite of belief being what gains the righteousness of God, the opposite would be works gaining our due or gaining a credit, which sounds exactly like the covenant of works with Adam. In fact, where, why would Paul even be saying this if there was not an underlying understanding that Abraham was and the new covenant were fulfilling what the old covenant with Adam had failed to do? Then he goes on to say this, he says, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Well, Sean, you've already read that Matthew 3 where it was very clear to Jesus, even to go to the obedience of John's baptism, uh, that he needed to fulfill all righteousness, that he had uh, work to do there for his father. Uh, certainly he was born righteous, but he had to live a perfectly righteous life in our place. And the scripture makes that very clear. Now, the language of merit, uh, this declaration says anyone who would remove the language of merit from our <coughs> theological vocabulary uh, the language of merit is very clear in the Westminster Confession. Uh, this is Westminster Confession 17.2 on the perseverance of the saints. And we read this, this perseverance of the saints, that is that those who are believers will always be believers. I, I think a great um, reminder of this is Romans 8.33. You know, we've already talked about Declaration 2, the idea that they want to consider anybody in the visible church elect. Well, what do you do with Romans 8.33? Who can bring a charge against God's elect, says Paul in Romans 8. Right. So, in other words, the elect are those who you can't bring a charge against because they are those justified by Christ. So, here's Westminster Confession 17.2. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, that's us, but upon the immutability, that is the unchangeability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, and upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. You see that there. The acceptance what, with God is not by what we do, by what, but by what Jesus did. And how do we persevere? Do we persevere in our own faithfulness to the covenant? No. No, we persevere based on the merits of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Now, I understand why the Federal Vision doesn't like this. Because as soon as we start talking about my salvation being only the merits of Christ and not my works at all, they, they, they scream, oh, you sound like an antinomian. You sound like one of those people who's, you sound like an easy believism person. Right. But we're not. No. Absolutely not. That is our righteousness. It's entirely, my my judgment before God, we'll get to this Declaration 9, my judgment before God is purely on the basis of Christ's righteousness in terms of my eternal standing. Right. The thing that seems to get missed is that the same standards which speak of election in this decretal sense, picking up many of much of the teaching of the scripture, um, also talk about the fact that justification and sanctification are inseparable. They're to be distinguished, but they're inseparable. And, um, of course, that, that militates against an easy believism. Let me read number five here. This is declaration number five. The view that union with Christ 
renders imputation redundant because it subsumes all Christ's benefits, including justification, under this doctrinal heading is contrary to the Westminster Standards. Uh, this sort of flows through the next couple here, but basically what the Federal Vision guys are saying is that when someone is baptized, they're united in this covenantal sense to Christ, and because they're united to the righteous, justified one, this is their language, because you're united to the righteous, justified one, in Christ you're justified. And so, because you've been baptized into Christ, and he's justified, and you're in him, you're also justified. And so there's no reason on their view why you would have to have his righteousness imputed to you. The reason you get accepted with God is because you're in him. Um, and and this could be good logic if it lined up with scripture. But it seems very clear from second, just in one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that there must be this great exchange, that my sin gets credited to Christ and that his righteousness gets credited to me. And so imputation cannot be lumped under all of this with union with Christ. Um, these, Although they're, they're, they're logically connected and we can't tell you that they happen in a precise temporal sequence, it does seem that we should distinguish uh, justification and sanctification, um, adoption, union with Christ. That union with Christ, although it, it can be used as a theological category of the whole complex of, of uh, these doctrines, especially that surround a person coming to Christ, um, that we ought to say uh, that that regeneration precedes faith, and that it that uh, that and that repentance soon comes after that, and by that faith one is united to Christ. Uh, and is adopted into God's family. And so the old Ordo Salutis seems to be uh, passe for these guys, and uh, the scripture seems to make a big deal of it. Let me, let me tell you what the Federal Vision guys, I think, and this is, this is from talking to men who hold this view, uh, what they are at after here is that they don't like, generally, they don't like the doctrine of conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've come from evangelical backgrounds where conversion was misused. It was all about that moment in time. In, in conversion here, what we're talking about is when Sean and I would use that term in a Reformed sense, we would say uh, the conscious moment if someone's an adult uh, at which they become they come under the conviction of sin and they turn from their sin and repentance and put their faith only in Christ. Well, That's I, what we're saying when I we would say, say it, it doesn't need to be only a conscience, conscious moment. I think that's what the Federal Vision people are reacting to, Okay, is that for evangelicalism, it must be a conscious moment. Right. It could be, but it could also be that I find myself with repentance and faith. Yeah, you might have a Damascus Road exactly. situation. You might have been uh, raised in a Christian family, right. and you don't right. know exactly when you believed for the first time. Right. The problem here, though, is, is obviously this goes against Jesus' words. Jesus says, unless you're converted and become like a child, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Right. So you and then Jesus envisioned a time when somebody would not be in the kingdom and a time when they would be. He's the one who came and preached, repent and believe the good news. Well, John 3. Yeah. I think John 3 really hits this in that Nicodemus is coming as, in a sense, Nicodemus is coming as the federal visionist with the covenantal view. He says, you know, he's coming saying that he is the one in God already by virtue of his circumcision. Right. And here's Jesus who says, no. You're not united with God simply by virtue of your being covenant in covenant. membership, yeah. Yeah. 
You are united when you're converted. You must be born again, says Jesus. Right. And he says, well, how's that possible? Jesus says, remember, what's born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, your circumcision means means nothing decretally. Right. What's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born is the what's born of the spirit is spirit. The spirit works as he wishes. You know, as the wind blows, you don't see it. You don't know where it's going. So is the working of the spirit. So what does that say? That says that conversion is not always going to be obvious, but that conversion is necessary. Yes. And what this federal vision view where they focus so much on the objectivity of baptism and the fact that we are united with Christ in our baptism, what they're essentially doing is rejecting any doctrine of conversion. Right. Or at least giving that impression. Yeah. And I think that's that's dangerous ground. Romans 6 Verse 5, Paul writes, If we have been united with him, that is Christ, in the likeness of his death, we shall also be united with him in his resurrection. So in other words, according to Romans 6.5, there is no one united with him on this earth who will not also be united with him in his resurrection. The Federal Vision is creating this fuzzy view of membership in the church. Well, that's the very next point that the, declar- the very next declaration follows right on what you said. This is declaration number six. The view that water baptism affects a covenantal union with Christ through which each baptized person receives the saving benefits of Christ's mediation, including regeneration, justification, and sanctification, thus creating a parallel soteriological system to the decretal system of the Westminster Standards is contrary to the Westminster Standards. So what the Federal Vision guys are trying to say is – we don't think that the standards go far enough because the standards only speak of God's decree. We're happy about God's decree. Uh, we think it's a great thing, and many of them would affirm the decretal theology. But what they're saying is that uh, it's not enough and that, that looking through the lens of the decree is murky. It doesn't give people a solid ground of assurance. That's This is their words. They don't think it gives people a solid ground of assurance. They want to give people pastorally a solid ground of assurance. And so what they do is they develop a parallel system where uh, union with Christ happens not by regeneration by the Spirit in the typical sense in which we've thought about it uh, through the preaching of the gospel, but it happens through baptism. And so that's the parallel system. That election, justification, sanctification, they're all fruits of this covenantal union with Christ that happens at baptism. And that's what this declaration is critiquing. Matt, I've talked with folks in the Federal Vision. I've asked them, I've said, what if uh, you had a, a teenager who uh, is doesn't want anything to do with you? He doesn't want anything to do with your God. He doesn't want anything to do with this Christianity. Uh, he's, he's been ba- he was baptized as an infant, and he's, he's just spitting on, on you and your faith. And, and I asked this person, I said, well, what, what do you do with that? What do you do with that person? And uh, his response to me is I would remind them of their baptism. That I would remind them they have been baptized and therefore they are in union with Christ. And therefore they need to keep walking in faithfulness and not reject the Christ who has taken them as their own. Uh, a response of a, uh, a pastor, uh, both of you know, and uh, both you and I know here in the area, um, he had a similar situation where he had a father come to him and say this, and his response is, well, have you considered uh, that your child may not be converted yet? It seems to me that that's a right response, yeah. because the scripture puts the objectivity not in baptism. Uh, the scripture leaves, honestly, a lot of mystery surrounding baptism, Yeah, but the scripture puts the objectivity in, do I love my brother or am I hating him? Right. 
Am I all that stuff in the book of First John? Yep. Am I showing love to my brother? Am I showing the fruit of the spirit? Am I uh, am I demonstrating that sin is decreasing in my life? by the Spirit's working in me. Mm-hmm. If these things are there, if the Spirit is testifying with my spirit internally, that's the objective thing mm-hmm. that we're to get, not baptism. Right. So, number seven, you want to read that? Sure. The view that one can be, un- this is in quotation marks, united to Christ and not receive all the benefits of Christ's mediation, including perseverance, in that effectual union is contrary to the Westminster Standards. Maybe you can describe here, Sean, what's, what they're talking about. Well, this is um, very similar to what happened with me. Uh, I was baptized as an infant in a Lutheran church, and I still have my baptismal certificate, and my baptismal certificate says, this baptism grants this child full salvation. Isn't that wonderful? I have a, I have a certificate that says it. Uh, but then it says this, be careful to train this child up in the way he should go, lest he depart from this salvation. So essentially what they're teaching here is that there are those, because they've got to deal with the fact that in baptism, the federal vision is uniting everybody who's baptized to Christ. Right. And they'll readily admit that not all those people who are united to Christ in baptism are actually elect. Right. So what do you do in that case? Well, then what you do in that case is you say, well, some of them can lose their election. And you'll actually see that wording in the federal vision. In this sense of covenantal election. Yes. Not change God's mind in terms of the decree. Which is why it's so confusing. For sure. I, I think one of the things that um, concerns me the most about the federal vision is that these are men who should be fulfilling uh, fulfilling the um, uh, First Timothy in terms of their ability to be an elder. They must be able to teach. And when they teach these views where they say election means this, but it means this, they end up being so confusing that they're not helping the people of God. And uh, until they can state these things clearly in the way that they relate, the federal vision is is not going to be uh, anything of a helpful conversation uh, to any of us. All right, declaration number eight. The view that some can receiving saving benefits receive saving benefits of Christ's mediation, such as regeneration and justification, and yet not persevere in those benefits is contrary to the Westminster standards. So the way the standards see salvation is they see it as a package and all the benefits of Christ. And so they're talking there about adoption, justification, sanctification. All of those um, come to us uh, as a package. The Federal Vision guys are saying perseverance is not necessarily part of the package that you get in this baptismal covenantal union with Christ because they acknowledge some fall away. And so perseverance they don't include, but everything else they do. The standards see all of those things together uh, because they see it flowing out from the decree, not flowing out from baptism. And so uh, we would say, no, perseverance is included. If somebody's elect, if somebody's regenerated, if they're justified – uh, in the confession sense, in the, the uh, Romans 3 sense, then it's actual, and they will persevere to the end, because it is God who's worked in them, uh, that perseverance by the Spirit. Number nine, the view that justification is in any way based on our works, or that the so-called final verdict of justification is based on anything other than the perfect obedience and satisfaction of Christ received through faith alone is contrary to the Westminster Standards. Now, this is something that we covered just a moment ago. 
in terms of the fact when we start talking about our salvation being based only in Christ alone, uh, that is where uh, the Federal Vision people get a little antsy, and they start calling us antinomians, and they mm-hmm. closet Baptists and any other terms that uh, that they can call us that that are thinking about the fact that we seem to be saying that it only takes Christ to be saved. And right. you know what we're saying, Matt? We're saying it only takes Christ to be saved. But at the same time, also saying that the person who's truly saved will do those works that they've been recreated in Christ to do. We do not deny that while justification is by faith alone, justification is not alone. Exactly. And the thing that gets me is that as I read the confession, uh, as I read John Calvin on the relationship between justification and sanctification, they are all very, very clear that justification is all in Christ. In fact, Calvin goes so far as to say, when you're talking about justification, don't talk about sanctification. Right. He says, when you're talking about justification, it's in Christ. And it's you've, we've got to keep it there. But he says, when you talk about what flows from justification, then you can talk about sanctification, but always be clear to make the distinction. And this is a place that the Federal Vision has introduced some confusion again, to the point that they're often being accused of holding to an infused righteousness, that we are saved finally, uh, not by... uh, Christ's works per se, but by Christ's work worked in us right. that are now our works, and that is what they mean when they talk about the final justification. Right. These guys, I think it also seems to me, um, and I've read this in a few places, uh, mostly through p- things that Waters has pointed out in his book on the Federal Vision, uh, that they consider the law something that's keepable. Hmm. And Jesus... It seems, I just preached this a few weeks ago from Mark's Gospel. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees had taken the Ten Commandments and exploded them into 613 individual commandments. Jesus, and 613 individual commandments, they thought they could keep a keepable law. They took ten, turned it into 613 that they believed that they could keep. Jesus took the ten and condensed them into two that everyone knows that they can't. Hmm. Jesus seems to want to convince us that we are incapable of keeping the law, that not a single one of us has loved God pre- or post-baptism with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, or our neighbor as ourselves, and yet those are the very terms that God has set out for acceptance with him. And uh, those are terms that we cannot meet. We can, they can only be met through Christ doing that for us. And that's the gospel And there's no confusion on it. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. May the grace of Christ and the peace of Christ go with you as you pursue him by grace, as you pursue his mercy through the ordinary means of grace. 